Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And today we have another familiar voice on the show. If you recognize the name Nick Sullivan, it's because Nick was gracious enough to join us at the Seafood Expo North America in Boston for a quick 15-minute interview about his new book, The Blue Revolution, which uh, I'm very excited to read, is available wherever you prefer to buy books these days. But we have a specific link in the show notes to buy it from islandpress.org, where you can use his last name to get a 20% off discount. Before we get into our conversation with Nick about the book and what's in it, I want to make sure I remind everybody to subscribe to Aquademia wherever you listen to podcasts so you can get all those new episodes directly downloaded onto your device as soon as they become available. And we are on Twitter at AquademiaPod. If you want to contact us, we do have an online form located at globalseafood.org slash podcast. That form is good for topic suggestions, if you want to be a guest, or you want to sponsor the podcast. For sure. And if you don't mind, we would really appreciate it if you took two minutes and left us a rating and review whether you listen to your podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever, if you have the ability to leave a rating and review, that really helps us out and we really appreciate everybody that's done that. So without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation we had with Nick and we will talk to you at the end. Welcome to the Aquademia Podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. So we're sitting down with Nick Sullivan, who is the author of The Blue Revolution, which is a new book that's coming out. And I think by the time our listeners hear this episode, it will probably be available. But Nick, can you give us a quick idea of kind of when you think it should be able to be found in stores? Yeah, I, I think maybe around the 25th, April 25th, something in April that 25th. range, plus or minus. Yeah. And this be. is 2022 for anyone listening like, in the future. Right. Yeah, in the future. <laughs> You know, people listening in 2025, nice to see you. Thank you for joining us and thank you for listening. But Nick, before we get into the book, you know, if anyone, if this sounds familiar to anyone, it's because you heard Nick's voice before and we've talked about this book before on our first Cena, I think it was our first one, Cena episode where we were actually on the, on the show floor in our booth talking with a couple people. We did short interviews. We did like 15 minute interviews with people. And Nick, and Nick was one of the guests that was gracious enough to come and talk to us in our booth and mention the book. And we talked about how people could pre-order it and get a discount, um, stuff like that. But now that the book is going to be available, we wanted to get Nick on for a longer conversation to talk about some of the content that's in that and some of the research that went into it and things like that. So before we do that, Nick, though, I want to revisit your story and kind of hear about how you got into this world uh, as an author. Right. Well, I, um, you know, I think I told you I, I have written a couple of other books, um, mm -hmm. uh, focus on spread of uh, mobile technology in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, spread of mobile money. So it's, you know, about the connecting of um, people who never had uh, phones or bank accounts to kind of the the grid, as it were. and. Um, that kind of work led to other consulting with central banks in developing countries and um, working through the U.S. Um, Agency for International Development, USAID. And it became clear that even though I was working in financial inclusion, 
that one of the big issues, um, obviously, in, in, in development security is um, food security. And um, so then, you know, in the developing world, fish is kind of a, the number one protein for, in, for many people. It's also a number one livelihood for many people. And so I kind of began wondering where the fish were going to come from to feed the world because, you know, we hear all these dire stories about the, the depletion of stocks and so forth. So I kind of dove into researching it about five years ago, and um, it quickly became clear that the answer was that half the fish is going to come from aquaculture. Mm -hmm. um, and it also became clear to me that, um, you know, people had very negative perceptions of fishing and fish farming. And so it seemed to me that that dated to the 1990s. So I began to kind of, as part of my research, well, first of all, I started out with a global perspective, and that became too unwieldy, especially mm. during the pandemic. So I, uh, I condensed it to New England and used it as kind of a proxy for the rest of the United States and many other kind of uh, advanced um, fishery management programs around the world. Uh, so it became clear that... Um, there was a kind of a pivot point around 2000 where after the, the 90s, things really began to shift. So <clears throat> that's how I kind of center the story. I kind of, you know, grounded in the 90s and then used that pivot point as a way to shift. And then it's just a kind of rolling out of stories. It's got 13 chapters and they're basically, um, I would say, um, kind of standalone essays or long magazine articles that can be read independently but there are obviously linkages between them. But so in each of uh, the, the first section on wild capture, um, second on aquaculture, and then a third section on um, global challenges, which is uh, illegal fishing, uh, conservation, and climate change. So I have a question for you. So when you began this research, was there anything shocking to you or any aha moments? Because I think there's some similarities between myself and you when it came to getting into this industry. I do not have a background in seafood until I started working for the Global Seafood Alliance, at which point my eyes were opened up to all these things that were happening. Like, Did I have personal misconceptions about farmed fish or aquaculture before I started? I, sh I did. And I learned through education and hearing other experts within the organization about kind of uh, demystifying these. And I I'm curious if you had a similar oh, I didn't know this was happening while you were doing this research. Were there a lot of things that you didn't know that or misconceptions you had previously that were debunked after doing some of this research? Yeah, well, I'd say that, you know, the biggest one, the overall one is just um, how complex um, the fishing industry is. You know, and there is so much more to it than meets the eye for the casual observer, the, you know, the fish lover, the fish eater, and so forth. And it's very easy to say, well, people are overfishing or they're destroying the environment or this and that, but it's an incredibly complex system with a lot of moving parts. And um, like NOAA Fisheries manages 460 separate fish stocks. And um, that in itself is, you know, amazing. They're, they're all independent annual surveys and separate quota systems for all those and regulations. Um, and so to be a, a boat captain, just to look at the wild capture part, um, it's almost like you need a law degree to keep up with the changing policy and oh, regulations. Yeah. And, and you have to know how to manage a boat and manage a crew and find the fish on top of it. It's, so it's, a, you know, it's an incredibly complex uh, business. And um, 
I think people don't really understand that. And so, the, and the other piece of it is, which is wasn't so much of a surprise, but there's a obviously a very clear demarcation between wild capture hunters and um, fish farmers who are younger, more entrepreneurial, more science or driven, more women in the field than there are in obviously wild hunting, and um, <clears throat> so it's like two very different businesses. And um, but the on the farming side. Um, also equally complex because you just think about farm fish and um, Justin, as you say, uh, you, uh, I, someone from the Nature Conservancy, the head of aquaculture, I saw a talk last week, he said, um, he's head of aquaculture now, but he said, I used to think that, you know, friends don't let friends eat farm fish. And that's kind of the basic perception that people have, you know, it, it was bad, maybe it's okay, so I like it. But the complexity there is just raising animals, you know, from you know, you, you, from the spawning stage, and mm -hmm. then the larval stage, and then the, uh, you know, the fry stage, and often many of the many of the raised fish are start in freshwater and then or grow out in saltwater, and so that itself is an incredibly complex, um, you know, system to manage and operate. So. Uh, very, very, um, uh, and most people, of course, don't think about this when they think about fish. They have knee-jerk gut reactions, pro or con. And yeah, and I think we've seen that in almost every industry. You know, the if you don't dive into the the well of knowledge and, and how complex certain systems are, you're going to get those knee-jerk reactions, and that's and then people die on those hills in some cases. <laughs> you know. So I'm curious, and if you're not, if you're not comfortable talking about this, then by all means we can just skip it. But I'm curious what your personal perception was before researching this book on these types of topics, and if it changed after you did it. Well, like I said, my real initial driver was a, to answer the question: Where are the fish going to come from? I had had you know in the '70s when I was in college, I had done some writing about fishing, and then I was kind of ca captivated by fisherman is kind of iconic American worker, you know, <clears throat> totally independent, totally free market, no subsidies, on the ocean, kind of separate from, you know, civil society, landed society. And so <clears throat> I had kind of put them on a, on a, on a, on a pillar really. And um, so coming around this time, um, I was really focused on fish as food. So mm -hmm. I, that was the perspective I came in with, is, is not about the fishing, is not about the fishermen or fisher, fisher people. It's about fish as a food. And um, is it going is it, is it to last? Is the, is the ocean warming going to uh, just destroy everything? Or So I, I really just had questions. I didn't have a point of view particularly when I started. Yeah. Where did you, how did you start your research? Because uh, I know like if we, if Justin or myself were doing this, you know, we have a lot of contacts in the industry mm, that we mm. could start reaching out to, but like, where, where would you start? Um, when, when well, you... um, so, you know, I, like I said, I live right outside New Bedford. So I've been following the industry just as a kind of civilian observer for mm -hmm. 30 years or so. And, um, so I knew some people around here. I started reading up on it. I just started reading lots of papers, science papers, newspaper, magazine articles. But also I knew some people in the fish business. Uh, I knew a fish dealer. I talked to him. Uh, I knew uh, John Bullard, who was a former administrator for NOAA Northeast Fisheries, the Garfo region, Greater Atlantic region. 
<clears throat> he was extremely helpful uh, and put me in touch with a lot of the NOAA scientists and administrators. So that was a big leg up talking to them. Yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, asking fairly simple and stupid questions, I'm sure, at the beginning, but <laughs> then coming back with more sophisticated, uh, you know, line of thought. But so I just built on, you know, I had a few kind of building blocks like that that I used and then would just like any kind of networking, then you get introduced to other people and then say, you should talk to so-and-so. Mm -hmm. So I just talked to, you know, 100, 200 people, <clears throat> a lot of scientists, a lot of entrepreneurs in the, on the uh, farming side, uh, <clears throat> a lot of administrators, and really not so much the fishermen per se, because the book was not about the fishermen as people. Um, the other, the other thing that you know was a bit of a surprise to me is that um, the changes in the Magnuson-Stevens Act over the last twenty years have actually turned out to be very good for the fish as a resource in terms of protecting the um, the stocks and allowing them to rebuild and come back. And you know, there are more fish in the North Atlantic now ground fish than there were twenty five years ago. They're just not cod and flounder, but they're redfish and pollock mm -hmm. and haddock and hake and fluke and scup and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, that was a surprise to me. And um, But anyway, so the regulations have been very good for the fish, but they have not been very good for the fishermen because of the consolidation in the industry and the loss of boats. And, um, you know, the some coastal communities or fishing communities have been hit pretty hard. Oh, yeah. Um, you guys are in, oh, you're in Portsmouth, right? But yeah. like Portland, Maine is in Gloucester. have had a tough shake over the last 20 years. New Bedford is kind of held up because it's a huge port. But um, so anyway, that was a a surprise too. And that, that, you know, going back to the original idea about the complexity of the system is that you make so a change to, to fix one piece of it, i.e. protect the fish, but you can end up really causing a lot of social and economic harm to the people in the industry so right you got to strike that balance yeah kind of find that it's interesting yeah and, we, and we've definitely heard that before in, in previous episodes uh some of our guests have talked about you know what are whether it's the quota or changing what time of year like the season like the length and anything that has restricted kind of this free fishing method where you can go out capture as much as you want and bring it back having all these regulations it's like sean said really trying to find that balance of i know this is your livelihood how do we continue that tradition can make sure that you can be profitable because if you're not making money then and you're like out of the continuously business. profitable you know yeah so yeah it's it's a juggle and i think we probably should you know down the road sit down with some more experts within the fishery sector you know and and kind of get their take on how things have progressed over the last few years but you know back to your one of your you know initial questions about how I started the other the other kind of building block I used um was the Iceland Ocean Cluster in Reykjavik Iceland okay which is an incubator on the on the docks to to um to build a network of marine related small startups that are um fish related but not in the fishing business what was that and, oh, I just want to write that down uh, the Iceland Ocean Cluster. And I I became aware of them because I'm affiliated with the Fletcher School at Tufts, and there's an Arctic Studies program through their Maritime Studies program. There's an Arctic emphasis. 
And I went up there for one of the Arctic conferences with this crew from Fletcher and met the people in Thor Sigfusson, the founder of it. And um, they have a completely forward-looking perspective on fishing that is very different than the United States. And now there's an ocean cluster in Portland, Maine. There's one in New Bedford. Uh, and there's one in New Haven. There's one in Seattle. There's one in Alaska. They're all spinoffs of this Iceland cluster. Um, and their whole thing is um, to change the economics of fishing by uh, aiming for 100% utilization of the fish. Because mm -hmm. so much of a fish gets, you know, 40% gets wasted. It's just scrap or fertilizer or pet food or, or trash. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but they're finding very kind of productive ways to use them and start businesses in healthcare and clothing and wallets and um, medicinal and pharmaceutical. And uh, so that was a, a big eye opener. And it's just an, another way of looking. So I started looking for uh, examples here of <clears throat> how that might be playing out, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, how people might be um, trying to change their, their um, mindset to, instead of just going for the maximum volume or the maximum price, but to think about how to get more value out of the fish we have. And what that really does is, is it lessens fishing pressure. If you don't need as many fish to sell because you have other ways of monetizing them, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not only good for the fish, but it's all, it also creates new businesses. And I feel like that kind of stuff is harder to get adopted in America for some reason. Mm. But uh, that's, that's fascinating. That's an interesting... Uh... Yeah, we'll see, because these clusters, like I say, are fairly new. Right. Uh, um, but the one in Maine is quite active in terms of, uh, you know, attracting members and new businesses. And it, it's a, you know, it's a collection of academic and um, uh, entrepreneurs and uh, research organizations. So it's a kind of, it's a dynamic, you know, it's a network kind of that... Yeah, yeah. Um, which is the idea of the Iceland Ocean Cluster. You get all these people in one building and have very good coffee. You know, it's like the Silicon Valley kind of cluster concept. Yeah. You good yeah, coffee you... and foosball or whatever. And, uh, bring, bring in the experts great ideas that, that are yeah. all in, experts in different fields and bring their minds together for, for a mutual cause. And we've spoken with, we've had a couple episodes where we've spoken with people who are working on projects that, you know, their aim is is 100% utilization of fish, for instance, the uh, Kaiga project, a few episodes yeah, ago, I was we just talked about that. that's out of New, New Zealand. And he mentioned... Iceland, didn't he? In that episode, I think he they were. I don't remember. We'd have sure. to go back and listen yeah. to it. Maybe we can put a link to that episode in in these show notes. But yeah, and I don't think there was monetization. It was just, hey, where you have fish heads, which mm. you know, I think is a yeah, delicacy. Heads, heads There's frames that would yeah, normally get thrown out, make, and yeah, you know, the uh, the Polynesian people, it's a delicacy for them, and it's it's highly prized, and they are able to basically have a filleting station on the docks where they say hey we'll fillet your fish mm. and give you your fillets back if we can keep the heads and the frames and then they give right. them to these communities that that prize them and it's feeding people and it's great so there's there's a lot of different options for these kind of things well um, i think in uh, iceland they were actually shipping fish fish heads to uh, nigeria <clears throat> where they're used for soups and in different you oh know, it's, a, it's amazing they recipes. have a video where they show how much meat they can actually get from the fish head. And it's like a lot of food. There's a lot of wasted food there that people would enjoy. So I'm looking at the um, table of contents for your book. You know, you, you got break, broken into three parts, wild capture fisheries, farm fin fish, shellfish, and sea greens, uh, which you're looking at, at kelp and, and some other sea plants. 
And then global challenges, criminals, climate, and conservation, which, A, love the alliteration, very well done. And uh, I think this is a really a nice way to set it up. And I like that you started with wild capture fisheries because I think that's that's a, it's easier to ease people into the aquaculture side of things rather than hit them with that right from the beginning. So I think that was really mm. good, really good planning on your part. And the thing that uh, there's a couple of things that stand out to me that I'd like you to get a little bit, give, give us a little insight into if you don't mind. Specifically, chapter three stands out uh, as the cowboys of the sea fade away, a post-industrial fishery emerges. Can you explain kind of that, how you explored that shift and what, what you mean by that? Right. Well, so I start in, in, the, in the, the first chapter is on scallops, cod and scallops, mm-hmm. and start out with the de- demise of the cod and the demise of the cod father, this Carlos Rafael, who was convicted of <clears throat> falsifying and mislabeling fish and not reporting um, income and so forth. And then the other thing about the scallops, they were also down and nearly defunct. Then they had this collaboration between scientists at uh, School of Marine Science and Technology in New Bedford and 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 the scallopers and NOAA and regulators. And they developed a system of rotating beds, the cl- open and closed beds based on you know underwater uh, photographs of the seafloor where they could see the scallops developing. Mm-hmm. And so that collaboration <clears throat> led to the reopening of the scallop beds, and it's now you know a five hundred and thirty million dollar business because it's and sustainable because they're doing you know multi multiple surveys every year in all parts of, you know from Cape Hatteras up to you know way up into the Gulf of Maine. <clears throat> so that was a kind of a pivot point, and then. Um, you know, in 2006, then there was a big rewrite of the Magnuson-Stevens Act, which led to the catch quotas and the transferable shares and so forth in 2010. <clears throat> and that was another pivot point. And so that's where I kind of used the the Codfather and and the cha- the, the scallop um, collaboration and the change in the Magnuson Law is all kinds of things that were pointing to a transformation of the industry to a more post-industrial industry. In other words, it wasn't people fishing to to maximize the volume, but to actually try to be as sustainable as possible and to um, fish for um, what you know people would call underutilized species. Yeah, that's a that's a story that we actually haven't taken a little dive into the mm. the, the, the cod. The cod industry is pretty infamous in out of New England for basically being completely depleted and then kind of bouncing back later on. And it's an interesting story for sure. And I don't want to get into it too much because I want people to go read the book because there's some really good stuff in here. But a couple other ones that that stand out to me: the Silicon Valley of cod and other innovation clusters, which is kind of what we spoke about. A few minutes ago, right. um, that's, that's something. The cluster yeah, thing. that's yeah. something that I think w- people would really like to get more information on down there. And and so you know, get the buy the book islandpress.org, Search for Blue mm. Revolution. <laughs> mm. um, looking into the farmed section of it, I was hoping if you could get a little insight into Atlantic salmon because that's kind of the hot topic all the time. And that's you know, chapter seven is the first first part of that second mm. section. Um, what are some of the things that you learned about Atlantic salmon through this? Because it, there's a lot of conflicting information out there. Well, and I don't want to put you on the spot too much, mm, but <laughs> no. The, well, the main thing with the salmon now is well, there are two main things. One is that the Norwegians, you know, were the started the salmon farming in the '90s, which led to a lot of the kind of negative reactions because of the nearshore degradation of the seafloor and the sea lice and the escapement and all these things that gave 
fish farming a really bad name. Mm-hmm. But the, the Norwegians have, you know, modernized that quite a bit. And uh, so, and one way of doing that is using these recirculating uh, aquaculture systems on land. Yep. Just huge tanks on land full of water. So you just take it out of the ocean. It actually started, uh, one of the first in the world was in Massachusetts, the um, Great Falls Aquaculture with Barramundi in the early 90s, which is still a um, very active business. Um, so, and the Norwegians are coming to the United States. So we're, we don't, we don't have, that whole carbon footprint was always also a big, mm-hmm. you know, we're, the U.S. is the biggest importer of salmon in the world, and it's coming from Norway and Chile and primarily, you know, thousands of miles by plane. <clears throat> so all the new salmon farms in the U.S. now, with the exception of one that has not been permitted, are um, land-based. You know, and, and the thing about land-based farms is um, you don't near, need to be near the ocean. You just need to be near a good source of water. Right. There's one in Wisconsin. There's one in Indiana. There's one in Florida, which is obviously near the ocean, but it's not using ocean water. They're going down into the aquifer. <laughs> Uh, and there are three planned for Maine. There's one in California that's coming. So <clears throat> that business has really, um, really changed quite a bit. And I think the the big question there is, and it it solves all the problems of um, environmental degradation and escapement and all that stuff. It's much easier to control fish in a tank than it is in the ocean. The issue there, of course, is the economics. Can yeah. it, you know, can it scale? It's expensive to run these systems. They're huge, you know, wastewater treatment plants. They're life support systems. A lot of electricity, a lot of water, a lot of technology and automation that goes into it. <clears throat> you know, a lot of stuff that could go wrong and has gone wrong. There's, you know, Atlantic Sapphire and um, Florida has had a couple of big die-offs. Yeah. So that the question is, how can you know? Can they scale this industry and work out the kinks and the technology? Which I think they probably can. It's such a fascinating topic, I, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are super interested in it because we did an episode with um, Ideal Fish out of Waterbury, Connecticut. Uh, yeah. It's a it's a Branzino farm land-based RAS and uh Yeah, I know them. They're that's a great place. Yeah, yeah, it continues to be one of our most popular episodes and we actually really? re-released it mm. a couple of years later and that re-release is also one of our top 10 most downloaded really? episodes. So it is just it's it's really something that people are excited to learn more about. So yeah, I think that technology that Well, that guy RAS, Eric Yeah, yeah, Eric Peterson. <laughs> Eric Peterson is great. He started growing, I mean, far, uh, raising um, fish in his aquarium in his basement to teach oh, his yeah. children about yeah. the, the natural world. Yeah, his he's wife wasn't a, too thrilled about that, I don't think. He's got know. a great story. <laughs> he's got a great story. Yeah, yeah. And they're, being, they're doing things right. Mm-hmm. They're doing a great job down there. Uh, we actually even created a video where people can see some of their facility and stuff. Uh, it's pretty, pretty cool. The RAS stuff, I think, I think, I do think that is a huge part of the future of seafood, and I'm really excited. That was actually one of my favorite courses I took when I was in college was aquaculture system design, recirculating mm. system design. Mm. It was really, really cool to see what kinds of elements you need to put together and get it to all work. And then once you get that water flowing and it works, it's just, it's so satisfying. So it's pretty, it's pretty cool. The other thing that's great is, you know, a couple of these places, and I know uh, Ideal Fish wanted wants to do this. I don't think they've started it yet, is to start uh, aquaponics. Mm-hmm. Use, the, use the fish water to go into greenhouses um, Hudson Valley Farms in upstate New York is um, raising steelhead, but also then using the the, the water to uh, grow hemp, which is a high value crop. Mm-hmm. 
Superior Farms, I think it is in Wisconsin. The salmon farm is all, it's got tons of greenhouses for leafy. Yeah. Leafy greens do do really well in in hydroponic systems. Mm. A lot of lettuce and Mm. and cabbage and stuff being grown. Yeah. Super cool. So that's, that changes the economics a little bit, maybe, you know, for the. Yeah. And it's cool because that type of system can be confined into like one building. You don't need acres and and hectares of ponds to do it. So yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Reusing the whole water, right? I mean, it cycles through the system. Yeah, there's a lot less waste. There's a lot less waste. For sure. Yeah. But I know this isn't an RAS episode, but if we just put it in the, in the title, now it's going to end up being the most right. popular yeah, right. episode. This is a little SEO for you. So then the, the last section uh, has two chapters and one of them is going to definitely be a little clickbaity for people because it mentions pirates, big data versus pirates on the high seas. What is uh, the, uh, the the correlation there? Uh, well, the correlation there, well, so that's about kind of illegal, unregulated, unreported fishing, IUU fishing, right? And... Um, which is this? You know, we asked earlier about surprises. This was a huge surprise to me. I mean, I I had known about this. I've seen you know PBS documentaries on it and stuff. I had no idea how widespread it was, or how large a t- percent of the global take was through IUU fishing. And it's like twenty to thirty percent of the fish caught are these basically pirates. Some of them are like flags of convenience, like from Panama that you know. They're pirates, basically. They're organized crime syndicates, really. Others are state, you know, like uh, China's got a lot of ships that are kind of a part of this. So the data part of it is the um, the global fishing network, which is this, you know, internet-based um, depiction of all the ships at sea at any given time. There's a 72-hour delay. They're using, you know, collision avoidance signals or vessel monitoring signals, Um and satellite information, and they they can track, they can see who is fishing based on the movements of the ship and the type of fishing they're doing. And they've used that effectively to um, identify and then go, not them, but others go and chase and apprehend these ships. Wow. And there's some very dramatic tales in that chapter, um, some of which are from uh, Ian Urbina's book, The Outlaw Ocean, which is a fantastic book. Um, and others from Global Fishing Watch itself about, you know, 10,000 miles chases from, you know, the Antarctic up to, you know, South Asia and and um, very dramatic stuff. And now they're, they're starting to apprehend some of the, the white-collar organizers, who uh, several of which are living in Galicia, which is a part of uh, Spain above Portugal. So anyway, that's just kind of a very dramatic story, but I had no idea the the impact on the global fisheries, the negative impact that that kind of fishing has, because it's that is just totally that's like the old industrial random hunting mm-hmm. of prize species, but also dragging in all kinds of bycatch and turtles yeah. and albatrosses and everything. You know, yeah, and disregard for any kind terrible. of of. Uh responsibility right and that's and the other thing about that is that there's you know there are six or seven countries that offer huge subsidies to these distant water fleets because that kind of fishing would not be profitable Mm. you know just on a in a free market basis they're heavily subsidized by the governments there's 35 billion dollars worth of subsidies and um the, the World Trade Organization has been trying to outlaw that since 
1999. They were on the verge of doing it last December. And then that whole meeting was canceled or postponed due to COVID. So I don't know where it stands yeah. now, but they seem to be on the verge of coming, having a big breakthrough to outlaw the, that those subsidies. Then whether they can kind of enforce it is another question. But Well, that's something we need to pay attention to. And as mm-hmm. things progress or things finalize, we'll want to have an episode on that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people when they think if you were to ask someone, okay, what are some of the bigger issues in the seafood industry? I don't think they would think of that kind of like seedy underbelly that's that's present, right? You know, they they would think of, uh, you know, mistreatment of fish at fish farms and all the basic stuff that we read about all the time. But there's a whole other world out there that doesn't really get spoken about. And it's if it is if someone does talk about it, you know, you need to tread a little bit lightly. So it's it's fascinating. I'm really excited. Uh, to get my hands on this book and read, especially those sections that we that we covered, I think it's going to be really interesting. You know, the the kind of flip side to that, the corollary to that kind of wild, unrestrained, um, random hunting, or actually, it's not random; it's targeted at high value species. Targeted um, but reckless is, the, is what it is. Right, targeted but reckless uh, is the is is the whole uh, marine protected area yep. movement, right? So the idea of setting it aside huge tracts of the ocean to, as no fish zones. Yeah. And that, you know, some people would like to set a, set aside the entire high seas, 40%, you know, outside of countries' economic zones as a marine protected area. Other people would like to just target large protected areas in the high seas and in country zones. And I think that part of it is, <clears throat> you know, to, to reduce fishing pressure, pressure, but also to give fish a chance to... Um, adapt kind of a refuge because between the hunting and the climate change i think a lot of stocks are under a lot of you know stress yeah and um if if there if you can put aside huge zones of the ocean that are effectively refuges uh it could be you know very very positive yeah that's interesting actually i don't think anyone's mentioned that on any of our episodes No, it's not something that we've taken a look at you're bringing up a lot of points well, there. They're giving us inspiration yeah, know, for right? more, and more episodes. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, so right, right now, about 8% of the world's oceans are in protected, or protected, no-take. And some of them are quasi-no-take. But, you know, the goal, the UN goal is to have 30% of the ocean protected by 2030. And so that's not likely to happen. <laughs> right. But, but, yeah, but, gonna but nothing's going to happen if you don't set those kind of goals. Right. So. Right. So, we you know, it's, there's definitely a healthy debate about it. And, um, you know, Daniel Pauly, who's one of the kind of the most, probably the most preeminent marine biologist in the world, is an advocate of closing down all the high seas. Hmm. And he claims that it won't really affect the world's catch, but that much, maybe maybe by 6%, because... So many of the fish go in and out of the, you know, country zones. But, you know, it's not likely to happen, but you never know. You know, people, he, he would say that um, people always thought that the 200-mile economic zone um, around each country was a, a pipe dream. But now, you know, it's baked into law, has been since the 80s. So things can change. Yeah. Well, things have to change. Yeah. Yeah. Or else we won't have seafood anymore, so. <laughs> well, Nick, if we're starting to creep up on our... Uh, allotted time and there's a few things that we still want to cover before we let you go one of which which we've kind of mentioned earlier in the show but i want to have an official segment on it anyone interested in getting this book where do they need to go and can you also add if if i know that we talked to you at cena there is a, a discount code potentially um 
Is that still relevant? If so, could you give that as well? Uh, yes, the discount code. Well, the publisher of the book is Island Press, which is a great press, a nonprofit press out of Washington, D.C., specializing in ecology and environmental issues. Um, so you can buy directly from them, islandpress.org. Um, and there's a the promo code Sullivan, my name, for a 20% discount on the book. Uh, otherwise, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, bookshop.org, you know, independent booksellers. Um, so they should all have it, you know, in the next 10 days, we hope. Yeah, so hopefully by the time people hear this, it's available and you can just go grab it wherever you prefer to buy books. From right, it, so. right. Awesome. Well, so, thank you for excellent. that. <clears throat> of course. What What is next? What's uh, What's next for you? Hmm. Well, you know, so I've been, um, you know, trying to kind of write some kind of spinoff and related articles to this book. And um, I've got uh, one person telling me, okay, you should really <clears throat> start at the end of the book and say, what is the next thing? What's going to happen next? So I'm not really there, but um, his suggestion was to look into the whole traceability issue and the, you know, the, the boat to plate the boat to dock or boat to plate uh, issue. Yeah. And um, of course that's something that's been talked about for a long time. And there are all these kind of helter skelter hodgepodge systems, QR mm -hmm. codes, blockchain and this, <clears throat> but there's a, you know, IBM's got now a big thing. They're just introduced for it. Um, there's global standards, the global um, dialogue on seafood sustainability, traceability, I think traceability, yeah. GDST. So yep, there's a lot of, of the show. Greg Brown is uh, part of that, I believe. Oh, really? Mm, yeah. So there's a lot. That's you know, I may dive into that. I mean, and the other thing, I I would just like to follow some of the um, <clears throat> entrepreneurs and thought leaders in this field because you know. So the if you think about the blue economy, which is a big issue now, right? I mean, a big debate uh, theme topic, now. Yeah. The blue economy, <laughs> all you know, robotics and this and that. Well, fishing was really. Fishing and shipping were the blue economy forever mm -hmm. until now <clears throat> underwater robotics and and so forth uh, and the other the other piece of it is just data collection there's so much that is unknown about the ocean and mm -hmm. the ocean is you know seventy percent and so deep of the planet uh, data collection has become a huge part of the blue e economy and and then um, so w what's going to happen with that data what kind of analytics are going to be done with it so that is would be something really interesting to follow as well. Yeah, for sure. And to see how the fishing um, uh, component of the blue economy evolves with it, you know, because I think it will. I mean, and there's a lot of the, um, a lot of the businesses that are not directly fishing related will impact fishing. Well, I'd say the last few episodes we've actually done for the podcast have been around ocean data, whether mm, it's really. satellite data or mm. just environmental data that they're they're collecting mm. so it's really interesting i mean I, I, ever since i started working at gsa the, the amount of innovations and technologies and and these pr projects that are people are spearheading it's just really amazing to see what's changed in the five years that i've been involved within the industry and and it's really exciting to, to to think about where we'll be in another five years. Yeah, well, even GSA started out as being aquaculture only, didn't it? Mm -hmm. And now yep. it's yep all fish. Yep. And I think that's the other thing that's really <clears throat> changed is, you know, I think people less and less are making that 
distinction between farm versus wild. They're really looking for just quality fish. That's you know? the goal. Yeah, yeah. you've really good, like you know fresh, well handled, good fish. It's not about uh, whether it's farmed or it's wild caught. It's about if it was responsibly brought to you really is what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's different ways to get different types of food and it doesn't really matter as long as it's safe and healthy and responsible. And that's really what it comes down to. So, you know, that's kind of the message that we're trying to put forward from GSA and from this podcast. We've been trying to do that from this podcast from the beginning mm-hmm. when we, when GSA was uh, GAA. So, so right. that's it. Well, you know, the, the, the other thing that, you know, related to all that is just the, and there's a bit on a, fair bit on this in the book is the um the whole fishy movement or the locavore movement in fish that is kind of mirroring the movement in food that predates it and the connection between um producers or fisher people mm-hmm. and consumers because i think a lot of you know the whole food the fish distribution system is so glo- uh, such a global commoditized chain with <clears throat> fish traveling tens of thousands of miles sometimes and um the only way that's really going to change, I think, is if there's consumer demand for um, change yeah. and demand for local, fresh, better handled fish. Because otherwise, it'll you know it'll just continue flying around the world. So that is a huge, huge part of it. Is and and you know with that connection becomes comes a better understanding of the complexities of fish and fishing and what fishermen are going through mm-hmm. and so forth. So I think you know it's a very positive development if it, it, it and you know the local catch network now has i think 500 distribution points in the, across the US so <clears throat> that's still a growing movement yeah and in the years that we've been here we've seen that shift go from kind of focusing primarily on communicating within the industry to starting to communicate more directly to consumers and the people that are buying the fish the people who ultimately are making the decisions on where the fish comes from so it's it's yeah, a, it's, it's a cool parts, shift right see. yeah the consumers are going to drive change mm-hmm. but at the same point what where do companies like or organizations like GSA um where what is our role within that communication education you got to be right? the middleman right yeah cons- consumers need to understand or be educated on on certain topics or, or that are important and then they start asking questions or demanding certain things and then that movement shifts the whole operation the whole industry so for sure so nick we're just about getting uh close to our time so is there anything else that you want to get out there while you have the platform before we wrap up um no i think um we cover a lot of ground i um i'm really happy this book is coming out after five years of <laughs> working on it and um, meeting uh, all kinds of people like you guys. And and, and um, it's really been a fun project. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping I can continue it as you ask, what's, what's next? I hope I can kind of continue in, in this world and uh, continue meeting the, uh, the, the thought leaders, the movers, the shakers, the entrepreneurs, the, the policymakers that are making a difference. Well, the so industry I thank is you not so much. The industry is not stagnant. That's for sure. That's you will true. not no. be short mm-hmm. of topics yep. and change. And you have plenty of stuff to mm-hmm. to research and, and write about if you want to stay within the seafood industry, for sure. For sure. I'm really excited to get my hands on the book, too, and start start diving into it. Pun intended. Yep. Pun intended. Always <laughs> intend your puns. So thank you so much for you know writing it and publishing it and getting getting the word out there. 
And especially thank you for coming on the show again for a full length episode yeah. to, to talk about some of the content that's in it and some of these hot topics that we all kind of, you know, live in. But, uh, you know, our listeners may not get as much information as we do. So I'm really glad that we were able to touch on some of those. So thank you again for joining us. We again, this is Nick Sullivan, who is the author of The Blue Revolution. You can find it at islandpress.org or wherever you prefer to buy your books. And remember, we'll put the link to the purchase site on Island Press so you can buy it there. And if you use Nick's last name, Sullivan, as the coupon code, you can save 20%. So make sure that you use that as well. And if you talk to Nick, let him know that we sent you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Folks, that was our conversation with Nick Sullivan, the author of The Blue Revolution. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. I know I had a great time in this conversation. And remember, if you use the discount code Sullivan on islandpress.org, you can save 20% on your order of the book, or you can find his book anywhere else that you would normally purchase books. So make sure you get on that because it's going to be awesome. Remember, If you're not subscribed to Aquademia, but you want to get every new episode directly downloaded onto your device, as soon as they become available, make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you listen. And follow us on Twitter, at AquademiaPod. If you're interested in being a sponsor of the podcast, have topic suggestions, or want to be a guest, fill out our online form located at globalseafood.org slash podcast. That's right. And if you don't mind, we would love it if you'd take two minutes to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. That would really help us out. We really appreciate everyone that's done that. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Ciao. Bye.